0: Holding Court with Mike Trevelyan and Dean Sheridan. Hi everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Holding Court with me Dean Sheridan and my barrister friend Michael Trevelyan. This is the show where we discuss court cases, criminal cases, things of that nature, laws, and we like to uh, just riff on them as we go off on tangents, we learn a thing or two along
1: the way sometimes. Uh, <laughs> how are you, Mike? Uh, yeah, I'm not too bad. I had my first vaccine dose yesterday, and so uh, I'm now feeling a little bit under the weather, a little bit tired, um, and I haven't yet developed any superpowers. So all in all, it's been a bit of a bust, if I'm honest.
0: Is, isn't the uh, the stopping COVID getting you a kind of a, a superpower of his
1: well, I, I've already had COVID, and oh. so I feel a bit like I've kind of done that now. And unless I'm going to get something better, then I don't really see what I, what I had achieved yesterday. Some, something better than COVID? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was really hoping that I would either have the ability to go invisible uh, or to travel around the world really, really quickly because I think if I had to pick a superpower, it would be between those two.
0: And then if you had both, you could travel to any point and be invisible.
1: Why would you want to go invisible, Mike? Well, I just think it would be handy if I'm, you know, trying to get into somewhere like Alton Towers, and I'm like, I'd really rather not pay like fifteen quid for a ticket, so I could just go invisible at the gates, kind of hop over and then be be visible again. And nobody at Alton Towers is going to go, screw me if you got your ticket. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I guess you could go to cinema as well, couldn't you? You could see any film you want, just sort of spend the day in the cinema, sitting in the empty seats watching everything.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or are they empty seats, or are they just filled with invisible people? <laughs>
0: <laughs> see, that's the problem that begins then. Like you start letting invisibility out of the bag, and then uh, everyone's going to be sitting around invisibly in cinemas. You gonna be like, was oh, oh, anyone right. sitting there? No, no, and then you end up just sitting on their lap. It's a really awkward moment because you don't know if they're angry or if they enjoyed it or not.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is the problem. I mean, I understand forty million odd people now in this country have had their vaccine, and um, so even if just one or two percent have developed invisibility, that's still a huge number compared to what we had before. <laughs> and what? Uh, and what vaccine did you have? I had Pfizer. Uh, I and it. I don't know... I, I haven't... I, I don't really... The thing is, there's all this sort of chit-chat, isn't there, about like which one's best and what the effects of them all are and stuff. But I'm very much like, I'll let the boffins deal with what is a suitable product to put in my arm. Um, I don't know anything about immunology, so if it's been approved, stick it in.
0: I mean, all you do is you take the people who have had Pfizer, the people who have had AstraZeneca, then you make them fight each other to the death. And uh, whoever's left at the end is is obviously the most immune yes well to be fair you know i don't think it makes you immune to bullets so maybe
1: (laughs) no no but i understand that's that's what they have to do um for their stage three clinical trial is is a big fight
0: It's just like that scene from the dark Knight where he breaks uh, a snooker cue in half the joker and he throws it down (laughs) between two people he's like oh there's only room for one of us on here
1: Exactly. Well, funnily enough, that's exactly what happened at the uh, vaccination centre. They just got a massive syringe and just snapped it in half and just kind of said to me and another person, "Um, there's only enough vaccine for one of you. And uh, then we had to fight. But fortunately, she was a really old woman. So I just murdered her.
0: Well, luckily, it seems that we all may have a chance of getting monkeypox soon. Seems to be a thing.
1: Yeah, I heard there's been like two cases of monkeypox.
0: In Wales, Um, yeah.
1: And it's—I mean, to be honest, it sounds adorable. But I—I ju- just—I don't know what the symptoms are. I don't know if you start sort of hankering for. Oh, I thought you were like, about the symptoms.
0: Sound adorable, like you just become a tiny monkey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if you do, that'd be incredible, wouldn't it? Well, I would—I would
0: just imagine that it's far more ferocious. I mean, if you're starting with the the well-known chicken pox, oh, and yeah. then upgrading to a monkey pox, then I feel like it's going to be far more severe
1: but then i don't know if if chickens are necessarily less aggressive than monkeys because like if i had to pet either a chicken or a monkey, I'd probably prefer to try and pet the monkey because chickens get all like fluttery and they start like pecking at you and stuff. Don't I? I
0: don't know, but I would say that, um, and it's strange that we've come back to this twice within about five minutes, in a, a fight to the death situation, <laughs> <laughs> then I would take the chicken any day,
1: hand-to-hand combat over the monkey. Yeah, that's true actually, because monkeys are pretty wily. Whereas, I don't know if you've ever been chased by a chicken, but I have. And they just sort of run straight at you. So you could probably just sort of kick it in the beak.
0: Yeah, but to be fair, it's a very small price to pay. It seems I've probably eaten about 400 of its brothers and sisters in my lifetime.
1: That's true. Let's be honest, more than 400. I wonder what the average chicken consumption is, because... I mean, you, I mean, I get through a lot of chickens, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if I had about a hundred a year. Yeah, I would I mean, say. I, that, I would say there.
0: I easily have a fair few of my dishes contain some form of poultry um, mm. throughout the week, and if I order from a place it usually has some form of chicken in it as well. So mm. yeah, I would say. Yeah, I would say probably a couple hundred a year. I mean, I have actually, in fact, uh, on our way to a gig once, bought a whole pre cooked chicken from. Morrison's and just devoured it in the car on my lap on the way for lunch. So that was what what impact did it
1: have on your singing? I presume it was a Gildino gig.
0: Yes, it was a Gildino gig. It was a Christmas gig and it felt my my singing was heartier.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You should have had a whole turkey. You should have gotten the spirit. Oh yeah.
0: But they weren't doing that at Morrison's. That'd be good, like whole turkeys, whole pre cooked turkeys. <laughs> That'd be great. I feel like Henry VIII or something. Like that <laughs> a banquet of giant turkey leg. Yes, uh, and I could just eat it in between each song.
1: Exactly, exactly. But but how are you, Dean? Are you well?
0: I'm very, very good. I all right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nothing much of it changes. I have my new home. I have a nice office. I have my gaming PC now. We played Valheim. That's probably about the highlight of the week.
1: Yes. Yes, we did. It's a good game, isn't
0: it? I loved it. It was great. So if anyone doesn't have it, go out and buy Valheim on Steam. And hopefully Valheim people are listening to this and we can get some sort of advertising. uh, Yes. Boon. Yes. Get in touch
1: with us, ancient Viking people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it was made by ancient Vikings. Oh, well. The original programming for Valheim was found upon an ancient rune that was discovered in Norway. (laughs)
1: yeah i mean otherwise it's sort of cultural appropriation isn't
0: it exactly so i would imagine a lot of games have (laughs) been cultural appropriation over the time of see how many people have made games where it's like japanese ninjas and that and how many people on the team are actually japanese
1: that's true let alone ninjas
0: yeah well yeah to be fair they did get many threats during the uh creation of tenchu which is a bit of a throwback. Yeah, that was a great game. I used to love Tenchi.
1: But um, but what are we here to talk about today? <laughs> yeah,
0: today, we're here to talk about court cases. And I will start with the first one, which is, if you got kicked in the face, Mike, mm-hmm. quite badly by someone... One of your options would be, and probably your preferred one, uh, especially if it caused you a form of damage, is to seek legal reimbursement. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to seek legal reimbursement. Yes. But what if that leg was not attached to someone?
1: Ooh, I can feel the plot thickening.
0: (laughs) Right, yes. So this is a woman who sues the family of a teenager who was killed by a train after she was injured by his flying body parts, oh dear so uh, so it wasn't suicide because i know that i know quite a lot of the time places like the tube and things in london and i think a similar thing in in new york and anywhere with those kind of systems uh, you get a lot of suicides per year and this is not that case. This is a teenager. He tried to cross the tracks. A teenager killed while crossing train tracks can be sued for injuries caused a woman on the platform when one of his severed body parts hit her, a court has ruled. So Hiro Yuki Joho, 18, he died when he ran in front of a 17-mile-per-hour Amtrak train at Edgebrook Metro Station in Chicago in 2008. And it was pouring with rain. The teen had an umbrella over his head. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that means to anything. i <laughs> just like setting the scene. <laughs> uh, and his, his, his body was severed on impact. A large part became airborne, flying at 100 feet onto the southbound platform where it hit a commuter. Okay, so this commuter was not very happy. And she has decided to sue the family. Someone said, if you do something as stupid as this guy did, you have to be responsible for what comes from it. So they're saying he was stupid for trying to run over the track in the first place, which it is. Uh, and therefore, the fact that his body part became an inconvenience to this lady is all his fault. So I think her name is... Her second name is Zokhrabovs, Guyanne Zokhrabov. She's 58. She's knocked to the ground, her leg and wrist broken, and the shoulder injured. This is in Chicago. A Cook County court judge initially dismissed Zuckerabov's lawsuit against Du Bois' estate, ruling that Joho could not have possibly have anticipated her injuries. But ruling in what is called a tragically bizarre case, a state appeals court disagreed. It found that it was reasonably foreseeable that the high-speed train would kill the college hopeful and fling his body toward a platform where people were waiting. So what do you think of that, Mike?
1: Well, funnily enough, that was exactly the thought that was going through in my mind, was is it reasonably foreseeable when you cross the tracks that you'll be hit and then you'll be, or well, you don't have to be killed, but a part of your body will be severed and will then go flying across the air and hit somebody else on the platform. I have to say, I think that's a bit of a stretch to say that that's reasonably foreseeable. I think it could be foreseen as a possibility, but I'm not sure how reasonable uh, a possibility that is. I can certainly foresee somebody being hit, but it's more the severing and the flying that I, I think is unlikely. Um, but Because they're
0: saying it almost as if it's an almost certain that that would happen. But then again, this wasn't a suicide. So surely if it was that reasonable, then the guy wouldn't have tried to run over the tracks in the first place if it was beyond a doubt that that was the possibility that would happen because as much as she's annoyed that she got hit I think he's slightly more annoyed that it was a his half of his body or whatever it was or limbs that hit her.
1: Yes I mean I suppose his days of being annoyed by things have have come to an end but um, (laughs) it seems to me that you've got to be careful not to conflate two tests of course because something that's not something that is reasonably foreseeable uh, isn't necessarily uh, certain to happen or, or beyond a reasonable doubt, something that does happen. So, reasonable is uh, a concept that crops up very, very often in the law. And it's been left to a large degree to individual judges and in individual cases to apply their own common sense and their own knowledge to reach a conclusion as to what is reasonable. And it's been said that what's reasonable depends on the view of the man on the Clapham omnibus. So you're supposed to have a sort of common sense, plain speaking person's view of uh, of reasonableness. And uh, I think the thing is, if you cross a train track, just at any point it's it would be different i think if you were crossing it at a crossing but if you sort of run across the tracks then i think it, it's certainly reasonably foreseeable that you'll get hit by a train even if that isn't what you intend and it isn't uh something that you thought was 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 a certainty but i, I still am struggling a little bit with the leap into thinking that it's reasonably foreseeable that one of your limbs is going to fly off and, and hit somebody else i i suppose it might be clearer to me if i had sort of photographs of the accident scene and I could see exactly where the platforms were or something like that. But one way of looking at it, of course, in terms of the difference between what's reasonably foreseeable and wanting something to happen or expecting something to happen is that every time you take your car for a drive, it's reasonably foreseeable that you might have an accident and injure someone. Uh, But that doesn't mean, of course, that that's why you're doing it or that you want it to happen or that you think it's a likelihood. So that perhaps is an illustration of, of the importance of keeping very firmly in mind the the specific test and not conflating it with other things so be the same is like crossing the road yeah yeah i think if you if you cross the road otherwise than at a crossing it's certainly reasonably foreseeable that you'll be hit whether it's reasonably foreseeable you'll be hit at a zebra crossing say maybe still yeah maybe and I suppose the other interesting element to this is, of course, as you indicated, the, the only legal recourse, because the, the wrongdoer uh, had perished, was to sue his estate uh, and therefore to try and take out of whatever assets he had left at the time of his death, some money uh, in order to compensate uh, the person who was injured. And uh, this is something that um, does happen. There are often claims which can survive and are pursued against an estate. Uh, of somebody who's who's died, perhaps while the claim is ongoing or something like that. So uh, claims against estates are are certainly a thing that can happen here as well.
0: Well, I was also thinking, what if, and I think we briefly mentioned this before, what if, say, it wasn't a limb? So she hasn't physically uh, taken any damage. So in this, uh, I think she broke her wrist or, or and, and injured herself that way. But let's say he just sort of splatted for lack of a for lack of a slightly more <laughs> empathetic word <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of blood uh, went either way he sort of like disintegrated and she got covered in blood yeah uh, it wouldn't have caused any damage to her but it would definitely would have caused some form of emotional distress if the blood of someone that you've just seen get hit sprays all over you and we mentioned this before about the possibility of of, you know bystanders to an incident and where that stands because could they sue on the fact that his negligence has caused them to see something that would call them irreversible psychological damage and then the fact that the blood on them on top of that
1: yeah broadly speaking you you, it's the law takes a very old-fashioned view towards injury and harm and it really does differentiate between physical and psychological damage and physical damage is almost always compensatable, whereas psychological harm is, is slightly more difficult to get damages for. So you would have to show that you had suffered a recognized psychiatric disorder. So you might have something like post traumatic stress disorder or something like that. Um, but it wouldn't be enough to say, you know, this was very upsetting, but I was otherwise unharmed physically. For somebody like that, they wouldn't really be entitled. To any damages at all, because for minor psychiatric injury, it always has to be connected to physical damage as well. Whereas, of course, minor physical damage is compensatable by itself. So that's why I say the law takes a slightly old-fashioned view. Would would
0: blood count? Uh, would blood count? Because I know—is is it like spitting on someone a form of like GBH or ABH?
1: Yeah, that can be that can be a, an assault, and I think a battery as well. And um, So we're sort of into the criminal law there. But in terms of the civil law and in terms of compensation for damage, if you've just been covered in blood, I think you could probably make a claim for having your garments professionally dry cleaned or replacements. But if you were literally just sort of splattered in blood, you had no physical injury and you somehow didn't sustain any recognised psychiatric injury, uh, then actually you wouldn't have a claim for compensation for damage uh, beyond perhaps what are called special damages, which are things peculiar to your case. So that would be things like replacement clothing and that sort of stuff. So surprisingly, it would actually be a very modest claim. If somebody had developed a recognised psychiatric injury, then they might be able to get in compensation for that. Yeah, so, so like uh, PTSD. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's there's an interesting line of case law in terms of remoteness, uh, which is the concept of how far uh, away you can claim uh, damages. Um, by which I mean not physically necessarily how far away you are, but how removed from the event you are. And there's an interesting line of case law about people who watched the Hillsborough disaster unfold on television and suffered psychiatric injury simply by watching it through the TV screens. And there was very little doubt that people who were actually at the Hillsborough disaster could make a claim for damages. But uh, people who watched it on the TV, broadly speaking, couldn't because it was seen as too remote. They were too removed from the incident itself. So that then raises an interesting hypothetical question about this case. What if, for example, um, there was a security guard in a booth and he happened to be looking at some very good quality CCTV footage and he saw the whole thing and uh, developed post-traumatic stress or something like that? Uh, There'd be an interesting question there as to whether he would be too remote to make a claim, whereas somebody on the platform who suffers the same damage might very well be able to make a claim. Do you reckon
0: it would be along the lines of something he might have to sign in his contract when he starts? So if you're watching CCTV, and like I say, this isn't a strange thing. I mean, this is a strange thing someone's suing what's happened. And the fact that this guy was trying to run across the tracks... But it's not a strange thing that someone might take their life on a, a tube train or or something of that nature. And I was thinking that maybe these days someone on CCTV cameras and that would have to sign something that they might see a thing that would um, affect them. Maybe in the same way, you know, like in order to be a police officer, it's very likely that you'll see things in your career that would affect you psychologically. And you can't really sue for that because it, it's part and parcel of the job. Same with, is, you know, kind of like... When you want about putting warnings in front of, in front of things, the same thing on a, on Facebook and that if there's a video that has something horrible in it or or an injury at the end or and they they, they sort of blur it out and put well wow, this has you know things that might affect you in it you click this you can watch it but you're making that decision so any psychological harm you can get can't go back on the site. So yeah. would you think that a security guard or something or someone along those lines? who watches CCTV on places like train stations would have to have something like that in place.
1: Yeah, actually, that's a really interesting point. I'd never thought about that. But uh, employers have to take reasonable steps to make sure that their employees are reasonably uh, protected from harm. But as you say, there are inevitably occupations where you are going to be exposed to harm. And uh, yeah, I imagine that there may well be some provision in their employment contract, limiting the extent to which they can make a claim against their employer. Uh, interestingly, just as a slight aside, um, you cannot contract out of liability for personal injury or death. So uh, you will often see places uh, making you sign a waiver as a as a consumer. You might go somewhere like a you know an adventure park or whatever it might be, and they might say, "Well, sign this form," um, and it will be a waiver saying that if you are caused personal injury or death, uh, you won't be able to make a claim or your estate. Won't be able to make a claim, uh, and actually, you cannot, as a matter of law, contract out of your responsibility to protect people from personal injury or death. Uh, it's obviously slightly different to the cases on the train line because it's not the employer who's causing it. But uh, just as an interesting practical point, because people often come across those. Yeah, that, that is
0: interesting because when you think about it logically, it makes sense because you can't consent to your own death. Because we've spoken before about euthanasia, you can't consent right. to being you know, assisted suicide or euthanasia in this country. Mm. So why would it be any different in a job contract if you're taking that risk that uh, of death? Then you can't make that decision yourself because by that logic, you would be able to choose to die then if you wanted to. Um, mm because mm. i yeah. remember someone was yeah. on about one of the hottest curries and this might be an urban myth i might have to look it up uh, one of the hottest curries that they did you had to sign a waiver before it because it was so hot it could cause like i think it could cause you to see things and uh, hallucinate yeah because obviously heat. the reason i think the reason people love hot food is that it causes like a sense of euphoria um so right they like the sort of like pain and that you you get it it gives you like a bit of lightheadedness a bit of euphoria and that's why sometimes you can push it but obviously to that Mm. extent um you can also go a bit a bit crazy with it so this guy suppose he took off his clothes and walked down the street after going halfway through this curry now i'll have to check that up (laughs) that could be a a, a, (laughs) that could be a bullshit and i will confirm next time but um i have personally had a, a curry so hot that I've had to, like, sit for a minute after a few spoonfuls and just, like, really lightheaded. So um, I could easily see it being a possibility.
1: Yes, because I was just thinking, I've seen you have a vindaloo once, I think, Mm -hmm. and you did look fairly uncomfortable during that experience. (laughs) Um, Yeah.
0: Now, this is hotter than a vindaloo. This was like a naga curry with, like, ghost chilies in. Oh, okay. They used to do it at a pub near me, and they had this Jamaican chef who made it, like, perfectly, so it tasted like tasted nice as well as the heat. So it tasted nice first and then it was hot. And this was like, I'd sit for a minute and take a breath. And this was, if anyone, obviously we've got some international listeners, but uh, British pub curries, usually they're not kind of like your takeaway curry. They're not that big. They they come out in a little silver bowl usually. like a a little cauldron and it's it's, it doesn't seem like a lot but I think I got halfway through that and needed to stop um and sort of get my head back together
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I've never I didn't realize that that there's this sort of sense of euphoria that comes from eating very spicy and hot food because I don't like hot food and I have never understood why people do because it just seems to cause pain. Uh but that's the first time anyone's ever said to me that you get you can get this sense of, of euphoria. And that therefore means that it does make some sense as to why people are sort of chasing that uh, that heat and that spiciness.
0: Yeah, you have to you have to work your way up a bit. I didn't used to like it, but um I like it more and more now. But I don't think I could eat that curry at the minute. I haven't eaten anything that hot in ages, so it, my my taste buds have sort of grown back a little bit. But yeah, no, I understand what they do. It. It's like a real lightheadedness, a real. It's just I don't, it's, and it's just like a mood uh, lifts your mood a bit, like a, a good hot food does. Even though you have to put oh, yourself okay. through some pain first, but it doesn't all have to be that painful. You don't have to immediately go for one of those like challenges on the internet where people are throwing up and drinking milk all over the carpet.
1: <laughs> after the day after your naga curry, what was what was going on in in the Queen <laughs> Sheridan stomach? <laughs>
0: uh, it was actually all right because it's fresh ingredients. If you have, if it's made ah. with fresh ingredients, you can see the chilies in that. It's the um, the bathroom schedule is usually fine. It's when you right. get jarred things and concentrated things that sources that, uh, yeah, they, they they tend to cause the issues. I'm pretty sure I that they fill it with uh, half diarrhea, half uh, yeah. Well, actually, you know the Scoville scale, what they judge heat of chilies on yes well there are some chilies that are higher on the Scoville scale than tear gas really yeah so i think the ghost chili is is hotter than than tear gas be like eating tear gas directly so
1: that 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 sort of implies that you might there might be people who would actively want to go out and be tear gassed to get that sort of euphoric sensation
0: Yeah, but I think they're talking about the heat because you wouldn't, like tear gas gets you in the eyes and everything, isn't it? It's like pepper spray. You, could have, you you, might like pepper and have a nice peppery meal, but you don't want to rub it in your eyes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's true. I can just imagine sort of tucking into a salad and casually remarking <laughs> that the rocket was quite peppery and I was quite enjoying it. Yeah. And then somebody takes it upon themselves to just tear gas me <laughs> yeah. in order to uh, to give me the full experience. Or I'm
0: just like, when well, you pass me the salt and pepper? I just pick up the pepper and just just sort of sprinkle it into each eye like, a, <laughs> like an eye drop. <laughs> <laughs> just to get that euphoric hit.
1: <laughs> is that passes salt and pepper. I can go one better. Just get out my mace spray and just <laughs> yeah. spray it all over your face. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I um I may have misunderstood the uh, the full effect of pepper <laughs> spray there.
0: But uh, okay, so we'll leave that there with our hot curries and a strange case of a woman who was able to sue a man because one of his limbs hit her. Now the next thing we're going to talk about today is this is similar along. The lines of it's more about an issue surrounding something like the son of Sam law that we talked about a few weeks ago. So, the son of Sam oh, yeah. law we spoke about a few weeks ago was uh, a law that was invented after the son of Sam, who was a murderer in New York, uh, went around and killed people and then tried to sell his story. And they created a law that would block him from making any money off of that story. So, the money would go to the victims' families, but it breached freedom of speech and the First Amendment. And we just had a discussion around it. So this is a, a famous case, well, group of cases. We've all heard of Project UTree in the UK.
1: <laughs> I think it's Operation U-Tree. Operation, Operation um, U-Tree. Because Project U-Tree makes it sound slightly more deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, so, <yeah. laughs> so, like, so they've been planning this for
0: years. Um <laughs> After the Manhattan Project, there was Project U3, <laughs> right? Uh, no, sorry, yes, I, I I actually thought to myself, what is it again? Because I I, lo- I looked up Project U3, found oper- uh, Operation u and and now have just gone back on myself. So yeah, basically, <laughs> Operation U3 uh, for international listeners it is is an operation in the UK to deal with uh, claims of sexual abuse minors. Uh, by celebrities in the seventies, and, and then it expanded out to different eras of different celebrities. So there was a very famous man in the UK called Jimmy Savile, who uh, just saying his name these days. Is just <laughs> I don't know why he's just sort of like all the Jimmy Savile jokes and all the all the stories that you hear. He's like he's almost like a mythological being now. But
1: yeah, I um actually sorry to interrupt, but I I did hear a, a tale. Of because the the Jimmy Savile thing um, again for international listeners who may not be aware turns out he was a massive paedophile and uh, I can say that now because he's dead and nobody's going to be able to come and get me for it he was a massive paedophile but that only came out about I think probably about a year after his death really wasn't yeah, it yeah 2012 I think it was
0: or at least that's when Project mm. U3 came Project U3 Operation U3 <laughs> Came into power. Into power. (laughs)
1: You you sounded then like a really like harassed chief constable. (laughs) That was like Project U Tree. I'm sick of hearing about Project (laughs) U Tree. yeah, so this this guy, so the, the point was that after Jimmy Savile died, there was a period of time when he was just regarded as, you know, a philanthropist and somebody who raised a huge amount of money for charity and was generally a good chap. Well,
0: they sold and off then, of his course, clothes, didn't they? By... They sold off his clothes and someone bought one of his tracksuits. And just take a moment for international listeners to explain that Jimmy Savile, is, he was kind of like a British icon right he was uh, around from the 70s children's tv which in itself is a little bit ironic he was a very strange looking man <laughs> he kind of he kind of looked like a a witch who was in man form with the strangest like pure white hair that he's had since he was what in his 30s and he used to do a show called jim will fix it where you send a letter and say jim i love to go to a, a theme park that I've always wanted to go to, but we haven't got much money. And then he'd turn up and he'd take you to the theme park and you'd get like a little badge at the end of it. And he did a lots of other stuff as well. I did a lot of stuff for charity, like Mike said. And I think he ran with the Olympic torch, didn't he? Did he die just before the Olympics,
1: I think? I've got a feeling he did, yeah, because he was a marathon runner for charity, I think, wasn't he? Or he did
0: something something not long before that, but I remember seeing it on the TV. So, And he wore tracksuits almost constantly. He was just one of those people that all British people knew and and had plaques everywhere and memorials and all that kind of stuff.
1: You know, as you were describing the TV programme, Jim will fix it, I thought to myself, I wonder why they've never brought that programme back. Um, and then, of course, it, it became fairly obvious to me why they never brought Jim <laughs> or him back uh, because of the horrendous legacy of Jimmy Savile. But the programme yeah. itself was quite good.
0: Yeah, the, uh, you could bring back the concept, but you'd have to call it something completely different. Um, yeah, you couldn't even have, like, anyone else all fix it, just just due to the history.
1: Um, yeah, you could have it with, like, Rob Bryden and call it, you know, Rob will put it right. Um, <laughs>
0: Uh, that actually sounds like that would be run by a paedophile, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So that was so we'll go back to what, where Mike was, if you can remember where you were, Mike. But I just thought I'd give the sort of idea of how much of a, a big thing this was when uh, Jimmy Savile was outed as a paedophile posthumously, and how he was a bit of a British icon before that.
1: Yes. And that kind of actually is is very important context for for what I was thinking of, because after he died, um, well, before he died, he used to be quite famous for driving around in a Rolls Royce. He had a particular Rolls Royce, I think. And after he died, somebody bought the Rolls Royce from his estate and had the intention of setting up a business uh, where people would pay to have car rides in Jimmy Savile's Rolls Royce. And shortly after he died and after this purchase had been completed, uh, all of these uh, accounts of Jimmy Savile abusing people transpired, including in the Rolls-Royce. And the chap's business model rather went down the pan because nobody wanted to have a ride in Jimmy Savile's Rolls-Royce anymore. So he actually tried, I think, to sue the estate of Jimmy Savile on the basis that effectively Uh, information relevant to the purchase, i.e. that Savile was a massive paedophile, had been kept secret from him, and he had purchased it effectively under false pretenses. The the claim didn't get anywhere, but it struck me as quite an interesting idea that um, somebody wanted to set up this business, and it was quite a sound business model. And then it was completely wiped out by facts which were known effectively to the seller in a broad sense, being the estate, um, but couldn't possibly be known to the buyer. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, that was just a sort of an interesting aside.
0: No, so from that, from this Jimmy Savile thing, uh, spawned uh, Operation U Tree, which investigated all around that era and the different performers people linked to Jimmy Savile and eventually people who were not and it led to the incarceration of of, Rolf Harris who is uh, another icon just slowly dismembering childhoods like they were actually so basically um, (laughs) I need to be a lot nicer around the subject it is quite uh, controversial so what the conversation is about it 's not actually about those who've been found guilty through operation utree it 's about people like uh, Cliff Richard who was investigated uh, i think twice never found guilty um, they never found anything wrong, but something happened where his name was leaked to the BBC that he was being investigated they had cameramen and things at his house. Uh, And then he's found innocent. I think he actually went to sue the BBC for leaking uh, for the information. And then there was a bit of a debate and controversy around that as really, should he be suing the police officers who let loose the fact that they were investigating him to the BBC? So from this, there's been a few people that got caught up in the U tree thing from that era. I think Jim Davidson was one, but again was found innocent. And this comes back to an issue i think we spoke about a while ago and it's it's sort of the legal rights of those who have been accused of something like this which let's face it is one of the worst things you could ever be accused of even though murder is is a terrible thing with murder what happens is you're either proven guilty or not guilty and most people will accept what the outcome and you'll be uh, exonerated uh, based on the outcome and if they find another murderer then you're fine where sometimes in these cases of a uh, sexual assault or pedophilia It's usually someone has said something, you don't usually know who that person is unless it goes to trial or anything like that. And if it's found to be false or there's no information or no evidence that leads to it, it gets dropped. But then there's this idea of there's no smoke without fire, uh, which means that usually you can end up ruining someone's life in just the accusation alone, uh, whether you find it to be true or not. So that's why Cliff Richard sued. So I was wondering like, what are the rights of people who are accused of this kind of thing? And it seems to be able to be made public. I mean, there's plenty of forums uh, on the internet, and that where people will, um, the minute someone is accused of something of that nature, or someone's in court to speak about it, or, or someone's been picked up, or they're in a house. Uh, there's plenty of forums with the internet these days, that people will share this information. And then you could be found innocent. But if you're part of a small community, or something along those lines, then you you've pretty much ruined a life uh, straight away. So what what are the rights of the an- anonymity of of the people being accused? Because I don't feel there is much in the way. I feel when someone is accused, it goes straight out, and whether they have the right to be anonymous up until the point that something hasn't been proven or charges have actually been made.
1: Well, that's, that's right. There's not really much of an entitlement to anonymity for accused in distinction to uh, a right of, of anonymity for uh, those who make accusations. And actually, the point you made just at the end there is, I think, a really important one in the context of this discussion about whether there should be anonymity for people that are accused of offences, which is that, there are a number of steps along the road to getting to uh, a verdict in a criminal trial. So it might start, for example, with the police uh, arresting someone on suspicion of an offence. You might kind of take that as the earliest step. Uh, the police might then charge someone with an offence. They would then pass a file on to the CPS who would decide whether or not to prosecute. You might have the opening day of the trial where the prosecution outline in court what the nature of the alleged offences are and what the defendant's alleged involvement in them is. You've got obviously the progress of the trial, the conclusion of the case with the jury being sent out to reach a decision and then them coming back with a verdict. And if it's a guilty verdict, you'll likely then have another day Uh, where there's then a sentencing exercise and the person is actually given a sentence for the offence they've been found to have committed. And the reason why I take all of those steps is because anonymity, the discussion about anonymity for accused tends to be fairly binary and people tend to say, well, either they should be uh, kept anonymous unless and until there's a guilty verdict Or there just shouldn't be anonymity and things should be as they currently are. But actually, you can be a bit more nuanced than that. And I think there's certainly a stronger argument for saying, well, maybe there can be a lifting of anonymity or a disclosure of the defendant's name uh, at one of these earlier points throughout the process. Uh, For me, I think uh, the opening day of the trial would probably be an appropriate point to make the name of the accused known uh, simply because it it's known anyway at that stage because, in theory, anyone can then go into court and watch the actual trial. Mm-hmm. So all that the media publicity is doing is, is amplifying information, which, in theory, anyone is entitled to have. But you know, for various reasons, they don't go into court and actually watch the trial. Um, at a stage before that, it seems to me that perhaps there is an argument for saying that people's names should be kept anonymous uh, and i think certainly until they are charged with an offence i think they should be kept anonymous that's that's very much my view because uh, as you say lives are ruined and one of the very common problems that people have generally is they say well you yeah, know there's no smoke without fire so even if somebody is ultimately acquitted the uh, the taint of the allegation remains. And of course, even if somebody is, is acquitted and everyone accepts in the end that they were not guilty and their lives go back to normal, uh, they may still have had two or three years or now with all the backlogs because of coronavirus and underfunding, four or five years where they are awaiting trial and they're awaiting a verdict. And even in that period of time, if people are saying, well, you know, we're going to presume you've done it, so we're going to treat you differently, um, then even if it's ultimately resolved in their favor, they've still had a very long period of time where they've been known to be accused of these offenses and, and things may be made very difficult for them. So uh, I do think, broadly speaking, that there is a place for anonymity for people that are accused. Um, just going back to the Cliff Richard story. I, from memory, what had happened there was that the police were executing a search warrant at one of his houses in London. And as you say, the, the police had tipped off members of the media. So what was actually being filmed and filmed streamed live to the world was the actual execution of the search warrant at Cliff Richard's house. So people could watch it as it was happening. And my understanding, actually, from part of Cliff Richard's subsequent complaint to the police, as you say, is that actually he was watching this footage. Uh, He was watching it live from, I think, his villa in France or Italy. So he was effectively watching a live stream of his own house being uh, raided by the police on suspicion of some fairly nasty offences. So one can, I think, easily see why in a circumstance like that, uh, it would make sense for there to be a degree of anonymity so that that sort of thing would simply never happen. Uh, not that it should anyway, of course.
0: So he was away in Italy. So what you're saying is he was on a summer holiday when he was accused of being with young ones. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, right. yes. He should have uh, stayed in the shadows. <laughs> I, uh, I I couldn't stop myself from going there with that one.
0: <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, it, it's... Um, It's definitely something I would say more because there's something quite primal about the accusations that people like Cliff Richard had against them that Mm. makes it so much. I I don't know why it is. I mean, I, I understand why from an emotional level, but when you look at it from a cold hard level, you know, compared to the way other people. Uh, you know, someone could have murdered seventeen people, and they'll probably be treated less badly sometimes than one person who is um, accused of of paedophilia. Mm-hmm. And it seems that there isn't much accountability. And I also understand why. I'm not I'm not naive to it. For people who accuse or use those kind of things, for there's nothing to say that you can go out and destroy someone's life like that if you so felt to be bitter towards them. And it at least would cause them enough trouble within their life just to make that accusation. And uh, yeah, it it would ruin their life for a while. So and there doesn't seem to be anything that can come back on anyone who makes an accusation. I mean, at the same time, I understand that you don't want to make it tough for people to be able to come forward and talk about those things, actual victims. And uh, there's the idea that um, I think it went up by seventeen percent reported sexual uh, assault cases went up by about seventy percent when Operation u Tree began. So people felt more empowered to come forward. But then with that, same as anything, I think there's a level of individuals willing to abuse that. And there doesn't seem to be much that you can do if someone is falsely using this or purposely doing it to ruin someone's life for nothing more than, than just that.
1: Well... There are, it is an offense to uh, knowingly uh, make a false accusation against somebody. And there have been cases of people who were complainants. Um, It seems to be particularly prevalent in cases of alleged rape, where a complaint is made that somebody has raped someone. And then the complainant in that case, when it it transpires that the allegation was untrue. The complainant is then themselves prosecuted, and there have been cases where people have been sent to prison for making untrue allegations. So there is a legal recourse, and I think part of the problem is the way in which it's reported, because, as you say, there is a huge uh, innate interest in salacious allegations, and that sort of thing has a public interest. And there seems to be slightly less of a public interest in reporting those cases where people are punished for making false reports. So I wonder if it's perhaps more a case of the information being skewed in the media not sort of reporting it in quite the same balanced way. So you tend to hear a lot of the reports of people making allegations of, of you know, people committing horrible offences and then it being slightly less important to report on those cases where somebody's made the allegation and then gone to prison because it's false. But having said that there's a huge gulf between somebody making an allegation which results in a not guilty verdict at trial and somebody making an allegation which is knowingly false. And so it certainly isn't the case that everyone who makes a complaint which is untrue uh, ends up themselves in trouble because there has to be a degree of, of discretion about whether or not to then bring proceedings against them. And undoubtedly, some people do continue to make untrue allegations and effectively get away with it. But again, that's something that would be itself remedied by a degree of anonymity because there would then be no incentive to make a false allegation, or certainly less of an incentive to make a false allegation if the person wasn't going to be named.
0: And I do believe that if you say, you know, it doesn't get much media attention anytime someone who who makes purposely false accusations and gets into trouble for it, that if maybe that was a bit more well known, because it does seem like this one sided system, then it would also be a good way of stopping people from doing that if they're aware, oh, actually, because I think there's this concept that you believe, and, and I, I, I did, that you could sort of, with immunity, just sort of throw around things like that and, you know, like I say, ruin someone's life. And that there wasn't really much to go, come back on you if you, if you were wrong or it, it was just like something you could use. And I think people do believe that. And if they knew that there were cases or specific cases where someone has, has gone down for lying then it would be a really good way of stopping people from doing that in the first place.
1: Well, that's right. Uh, And it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that every witness uh, in a case, um, particularly in, in, in the criminal courts, when they give their evidence in courts, they will have to give either an oath or an affirmation promising that they are going to tell the truth. And that oath or affirmation isn't just a formality, Uh, It is a solemn promise to the court to tell the truth. And there are consequences if you go to court and you lie. And um, those consequences can be very severe. You can be sent to prison for lying in court. But the difficulty, of course, is differentiating between those cases where somebody is simply wrong or mistaken and those where they have actively lied. It's only in the latter case where they would have consequences. (laughs) So we'll move on
0: from that to something a little bit more lighthearted, away from the paedophiles of Days Yonder. Uh we will move <laughs> on to I Call Bullshit. So here's a good one for you this week, Mike. Let's see whether we are excited it's bullshit or not. And just a little explanation. I call bullshit is a part of the show where I present Mike with a, a crime usually or or someone will end up getting arrested or an issue uh, or a court case. That sounds or is, bullshit. Something that's been shared on the internet, uh, in maybe in meme form, uh, that people believe and share around. And then I investigate these to see if they're true or false. And then Mike has to tell me everything is uh, true or false. So, Mike. Man practices his karate on swans at Lake Eola Park and gets arrested.
1: <laughs> um, oh, this is tough, because I've got images... Of a kind of man in like a karate uniform just snapping swans' necks. <laughs> and that seems to me to be unlikely. But I can see somebody practicing karate by being, you know, doing the sort of more tranquil Zen parts of karate, which perhaps just involve occasionally kicking a swan or whatever. And I can see somebody going, you know, that, 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 I wasn't doing any harm. I was just occasionally. Kicking a swan. I think you're thinking of like crane style, you
0: know, <laughs> like yes, <laughs> so see, like a sort of kung fu movie where they like you do crane
1: style. Um, yes, swan style. Swan style. I I can ah. Oh, what what was the name of the park? Lake Eola. E O L A. E O L A. Um, because I this see this is one of those difficult ones where I think I think a country would really help me to understand whether or not this is likely to be true but
0: america i'll give you that
1: okay then i'm going to say this is true
0: yes it's true (laughs) (laughs) it's actually a florida man um (laughs) of course it is jacksonville uh, florida he's accused of kicking swans at an orlando park for karate practice multiple witnesses said they saw Rocco Joseph Mantella 34 attacking the swans Thursday morning around nine fifteen, according to Orlando Police Department arrest records one witness said Mantella kicked two swans in the head and another in the backside as hard as possible <laughs> yeah and the kicks were strong enough to knock the swans over and this <laughs> this is this is like the icing on the cake and uh the same witness, said Mantella, also kicked a small duck that appeared to have been sleeping. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh dear! But this is interesting, right? Because the other thing that was in my mind in determining whether or not this was true was that what is the one fact that everyone knows about swans?
0: What, that supposedly they can break your arm?
1: They can break a man's arm, exactly. So I wondered how likely it was that somebody was going to start on a swan.
0: Is that an urban myth?
1: Well, I mean, they are quite aggressive. I mean, I've been to Stratford a few times and they have swans. know they're
0: aggressive. I once, when I was younger, I was walking with my uh, my like great uncle uh, and I fell into a river. Well, not a river, more like a brook. And was it I babbling, was, would you say? It, yeah, it was babbling, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there was a swan over from me and it sort of hissed and I was absolutely crapping myself. And then they, they managed to pull me out. But at that time, I wasn't much bigger than the swan. So that was a more terrifying experience. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I know they can, can be that way. I mean, geese, Jesus, geese will kick off of anything. Oh, yeah, geese e- would Even well a like. honey badger.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is the sort of thing that somebody should program a game where you just have like a battle arena and you can just add, you know, 100 geese, 100 swans, 15 honey badgers, and a cavalry unit from the medieval age, and they would just fight, and it would just kind of work out who's better. pretty sure the cavalry unit would take all of them. What?
0: Really? As as in just the horses, or you're talking about the men on the back of it?
1: The horses with men?
0: Yeah. What, armoured men on the back of horses can't take some geese and some swans?
1: Yeah, because the swans will swarm them. So what will happen is you'll have, like, it'll be like... Um, you know, in I'm a celebrity where they have the bush ducker trials and they have like a thing over their head or something and it's just filled with bugs. Well, imagine that you're a medieval knight and your armor is just filled with angry geese. Did you, did you say swans? there was
0: an e- even amount of cavalry members to there were geese and swans?
1: It, no, in my mind, it would be like 100 geese, 100 swans, and maybe like 10 cavalry people.
0: I don't know. I think you could do it. I mean, if someone told me, look, here's a here's some armor, here's a sword, and here's a big horse, and you've got, uh, or you could be one of these 100 ge- uh, geese or swans. I know which one I'd be.
1: But if it was like 20 to one, so it was 10 geese, 10 swans for yeah, every they're, they're, they're
0: only beaks. No. How are they going to get through your armor unless like they're really good and they get like specifically between uh, the sections of the armor. But like you swing one sword, you know, around and there's like 10 geese in front of you. You're chopping through about three of them.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't doubt you could get in a couple of good swings, but probably not very many before you're pulled off the horse. And then, I mean, once you're on the ground and they are angry geese around, it's game over, isn't it? I don't know, I think geese are too small. It's the honey badgers I'll be worried about.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that would... Ha- well, based on last week... Perhaps we could chuck a couple of armadillos in there.
0: Oh, that'd be pretty good. Yeah, but I don't think they would do a lot towards you, other than like by the sounds of it, smack it with a sword and the sword smacks you back in the face.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I um but that's exactly why somebody should make a a, a simulation where you can do this in a sort of Roman amphitheatre and you can just pit all these animals and people against each other. I think that'd be really good. But um but given that Swans can break people's arms. I'm surprised that this guy was able to do karate and didn't actually take a bit of a beating from these swans.
0: He must have been really good at karate.
1: Does it say what what sort of belt he was?
0: No, he just said a separate witness said they saw Mantella leaving a walkway in the park to chase a swan. When he saw that witness's reaction, he laughed. A third... witness told, Mantella, uh, told the police that Mantella kicked a swan in the face, then looked at the witness and laughed while he continued to attack the other animals. So when the police arrived at the scene, they arrested Mantella. They also searched for the swans that were attacked, but they couldn't find them. Oh, I'm not surprised. Mantella faces a, a charge of cruelty to animals. It's being held at the Orange County Jail in lieu of a $1,000 bail, according to court records. Uh, and that's just what we've got from it. So I don't know. You must have some balls. Um, I have a picture of him. Excellent. And it might work... It looks like he hasn't escaped unscathed. Either that, or he's got like some terrible scabies or something like that. I'll show you a picture, and you can describe this man for our audience.
1: I will. I will. I'm excited to see this, because I, I would be surprised if he... Oh, oof, oof, dear.
0: So you can see he, it looks like he's got some scabs in that on his head and on his lip, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean... What's weird is that he seems to have, like, a pearl earring.
0: Two pearl earrings.
1: Yeah. That's that's an odd aesthetic choice, I think, because, I mean, he looks like... Dear listener, if you imagine the sort of slightly leery skinhead who spends too much time hanging around your local pub, and then imagine that he's been... He's been sort of, um, yeah, attacked by a group of swans, I suppose. So he's got marks all over his lips and on the top of his head. So that's what we're looking for. But then he's wearing a pearl earring or pearl earring in each ear, which is kind of more the preserve of of 70-year-old ladies. So it's very peculiar. It's a very peculiar style that he's gone for. Um, I mean, I see here he's apparently 34 Is he going to be a sort of enthusiastic amateur at judo, a sort of yellow belt or whatever the sort of most junior one is, white belt, I suppose, or is he going to be somebody by that stage of his life who's actually gone and got himself, you know, a black belt in judo, and he is just demolishing swans left, right, and centre? I don't know, and I don't know which one would be better. Please do email us in. Would it be better if he was an enthusiastic amateur or a (laughs) black belt in judo? who was just laying down the law.
0: Part of me believes that maybe he's uh, seen Rocky one too many times in the scene where Rocky has to train by chasing a chicken. Yes. And he's like, much oh, so. I'll, I'll go one step up. I will just kick the shit out of a swan.
1: Yeah, well, that would that would be a logical development, wouldn't it? His eyes are freaking me out because it's like he's peering directly into my soul.
0: <laughs> All right, I'll stop the share so you don't have to stare into his eyes. Thank but- you. But, yeah, it looks like he's t- taken some damage from the swan. Yeah, he, he hasn't his arms seem unscathed. unscathed, though. His arms?
1: Yeah, given that, you know, he, the swans can break a man's arm. Oh, yeah, I'm, okay. I'm surprised <laughs> that they didn't do that. Because, I mean, if you're going to break somebody's arm as a swan, I would have thought, you know, what, you know gonna, that's gonna, the time to do it. I'm like?
0: going to clear this up right now. You might hear some clicking, dear listeners, because I'm um, just doing a little search on can swans break a man's arm.
1: I'm pretty sure they can. <laughs> So, I'm pretty confident, because got they've got really, big wings.
0: Can swans eat bread? I'm sure they can. Can a swan break your arm? It's actually a myth. There are no a reports what? that a swan has ever broken someone's arm. The bones in their wings are much thinner and smaller than human bones, and it's also quite hollow. Experts have said they'd be more likely to break their bones if they tried to do it to a human. I always thought that when they were going to break your bones, it was going to be with like their neck and their head. Well,
1: they just sort of, like, smack their head into you.
0: Well, I, I never assumed... Well, because their neck, like, sort of twists around, you know, like maybe, they, like, bite and, like, yank their neck, like, really fast and it breaks you around. I, I never assumed that it would be with the wings. I never assumed that, like, you know, they just got their two wings and just,
1: like, <laughs> like <laughs> used them <laughs> yeah, like it- hands. What I had in mind was that sort of thing that they do. And dear listener, you can't see this, but when they sort of puff up their wings and I'm sort of doing it for Dean right now, and (laughs) you can kind of imagine that they would sort of fly out with their wings and they'd be big, heavy wings and it would just kind of bash you. Um, But no, it's okay. Is there's any
0: um, listeners out there that have any links to Swan Lake, Mike is free for auditions. <laughs> From what I've just seen, and take my word for it, he would be a fantastic addition to the, to the cast.
1: <laughs> Particularly in that scene in Swan Lake where they just go berserk and start breaking people's arms.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's why they can only show it once a year, due to the recovery time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh dear. Um but yeah, that is a surprising story, I have to say. And I I I would love to know how senior he is in the world of karate.
0: Well, I think we'll leave it there for this week. That seems like a good end. Uh karate expert who takes on swans who can't break a man's arm, sadly. It's been ruined for us. We've covered many, many subjects this week. Uh, do you have anything to say, Mike, before we leave? Uh
1: yeah, just the for those people who are perhaps younger or or international listeners when we were talking about jimmy savile you might be tempted to google jimmy savile and see what he looked like um although dean did an excellent job of describing him it seems weird to say now that people at the time were surprised he was a pedophile because when you look at a picture of him it will have seemed fairly obvious (laughs) um but for some reason people just didn't realize at the time and you know we all failed you
0: So what you're saying is, uh, if you're a good artist, before you look up Jimmy Savile, draw what you think a paedophile would look like, um, and you probably will be close to the image that you will find on Google search.
1: Yes, yes. And it's also possibly worth mentioning for that purpose that Jimmy Savile was also famous for smoking cigars. So that might form part of the image. And saying now, then, now, then. Yes, yes. Which is difficult to convey through a picture but um, no, yeah. no doubt it can be done.
0: Yes, uh, unless it was a picture of him now and then a picture of him uh, now. And then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, that's how to do it.
0: Except for he's been dead for about nine years or eight years or whatever it is, so...
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, it, so it... we've...
0: Oh, I've just cut you off, mate. What were you about to say? <laughs>
1: No, you're fine. I think I I said all I need to say on the subject of Jimmy Savile.
0: Okay, well, thank you for joining us, listeners, and we hope you join us again next week for another exciting episode of Holding Court.
1: Goodbye, everybody.
0: If you know of any strange court or legal cases you would like us to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at holding.court at outlook.com.